Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. With Westminster distracted by the torment at Wembley, Rishi Sunak was secretly plotting to see off a big Tory rebellion on foreign aid. I'm Jessica Algott, Chief Political Correspondent of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The eyes to the right, 333. The nose to the left, 298. The eyes have it, the eyes have it, a lot. Yesterday, MPs voted in favour of the controversial four billion cut to the foreign aid budget. And those who opposed the move believe it would lead to 100,000 deaths and millions facing malnutrition. And it led Theresa May to vote against the government for the first time in 25 years. I know what it is like to see party colleagues voting against their government. We made a promise to the poorest people in the world. The government has broken that promise. This motion means that promise may be broken for years to come. John Major, the former Tory Prime Minister, referred to the move as the stamp of Little England, not Great Britain. Which, funnily enough, leads nicely into the other big news story of the week. How politicians compete with footballers on the stage of progressive patriotism. And uh, the players have have had an incredible um, togetherness and spirit, which I think has brought so so many parts of our country together. So, you know, they they should be, and I I think they are, incredibly proud of what they've done. Um, Football demonstrated that patriotism, expressed in a certain way, doesn't have to be divisive. But how do the leaders of the two main political parties use that to their advantage? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to discuss the latest, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Martin Kettle. Martin, it's it's lovely to have you on. And let's start with the vote on on foreign aid cuts uh, yesterday. And, And having the vote in the first place kind of came as a surprise, didn't it? They sprung it on... The rebels, as a, you know, perhaps as a way to stop them being so organised. Very much so, and I mean, it was uh, just twenty-four hours' notice, um, and it was uh, announced under cover of plenty of excitement about the football and other things. So uh, it, it was. Uh, I think the rebels were a bit blindsided, but uh, the, it was a, it was an inefficient job had been done by the treasury in particular uh, and the whips. And initially, when 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 Andrew Mitchell, who was the kind of uh, leading figure in the in in the rebel movement was uh, was trying to to get an amendment passed a few weeks ago. Um, he felt very very strongly that he did have the numbers, you know, more than the numbers, in fact. And what what do you think happened in between now and then? 
Well, I think that there was a pretty assiduous attempt by the government to find a way of backing down because it, uh, it, it, you know, it has, it has had to back down to some degree uh, on this and to find a way which is presentable to a sufficient number of the, the rebels. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, as you say, Andrew Mitchell was talking about at least forty-five to fifty. In the end, uh, I think uh, you know it was it was twenty-four yesterday who rebelled. So it was a it was a sordid. Uh, effort what they were doing because obviously if you look at the terms under which the uh, the, the the government motion uh, uh, was written yesterday uh, I mean b- basically that cuts the government quite a lot of slack um, because it's unlikely that the return any return to 0.7 under a conservative government will happen this side of the next general election and who knows what will be in the manifesto on this subject uh, at that time so uh, this there's a weasel word in there of a sustainable uh, level of uh, debt reduction and you know sustainable is in the eye of the treasury not of uh, of people who want to get uh, back to 0.7 so I, I i think in effect what's happened is britain has cut its aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5 uh, for the foreseeable future what sort of struck me looking at those names of the of the list of rebels is how many you know people there are who kind of have very prominent or eminent positions, ex-ministers, ex-cabinet ministers, chairs of select committees, former prime ministers, Theresa May. And um, and there's also, you know, the other Johnson's other two conservative predecessors, David Cameron, John Major, they've all come out so strongly against it. And how much damage do you think that does to Britain's global reputation? Uh, and how does it fit into this idea of there being, you know, us being great global Britain nowadays? Well, I think it does a lot of damage. I think it definitely did some damage at the G7 um, when uh, there were some pretty feisty arguments down in Cornwall uh, over this subject and over Britain's role in the vaccine uh, uh, programme. I think I'm right in saying that only one member of the most recent intake uh, rebelled against the government, um, the 2019 intake. So there is to some extent here a generational thing, I think, that there is this generation that was very committed to what Theresa May herself once called the, uh, you know, getting rid of the nasty party image. And she was very uh, loyal to the 0.7 target uh, and then uh, commitment when it got to that. And I think there are, you know, people from that generation who regret the the passing of the, you know, the ending of the the Cameron Osborne modernization of the Tory party and, um, uh, and and all of that. The younger ones, the, the newer intake, are less concerned about that. They're more focused on uh, the, the so-called levelling up agenda and Brexit and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and the, the, I think the 2019 MP, the one 2019 MP who... Uh, who did vote for it, Anthony Mangal, I think, you know, he's a former aide to William Hague, uh, an ex-foreign office man. So, so you know, he's, a, he's a, slightly, a slightly different, comes from a slightly different background from uh, from, other, from the others. I think it should be said, though, Jess, that I, you know, there are a lot of rebellions going on in the Tory party. It's quite a, a fissiparous bunch of uh, MPs. I mean, there have been some quite big uh, revolts uh, on, on, on a variety of things over the past few months. And, um they're not always uh, involving the usual suspects. I mean, yesterday's bunch of uh, rebels was a very different bunch from the people who voted against 
the COVID tears, for instance. I think there's a I think there's a culture of rebellion uh, simmering away within the Tory backbenches, which the government's done relatively little, I think, to 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 stop. And of course, they came to power. Uh, this government preeminently came to power as a backbench rebellious. Uh, force and uh, there's something of that still in the part in the in the party at the moment. So I don't think this is um, going to go away. And I think this probably need, leads us quite neatly on to the the unlocking story. You know, it's it's been made clear to me and, and and to others elsewhere that that the government really did not feel like they could delay July 19th any longer with the support of the of the Tory party, and that was pretty much across the board in the Tory party, even amongst some people we might in the Guardian describe as the kind of sensible wing of the Tory party, um, they weren't prepared to, 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 to go along with restrictions any longer and the government weren't prepared to, to see it through just on the back of Labour votes. And that political calculation to go ahead with the July 19th unlocking is, is a tricky reason to do it, isn't it? I think there's a, a, a reasonable case for unlocking. Um, and I think, you know, that case has been made not just by Boris Johnson, but also yesterday by Nicola Sturgeon. The difference, of course, is that Johnson articulated it in the most uh, absurd kind of libertarian sort of way. So, I mean, there has been this quite significant backlash, might be to put it a bit strongly, but a kind of pushback in terms of the rhetoric. And, you know, that was reflected to some extent in what Johnson said uh, in his press conference this week. My, My guess is that, you know, Johnson has been a bit found out again by sort of playing to a more right-wing uh, gung-ho sort of Brexity gallery. I think the majority on this occasion is mu- is much more cautious, and I think public behaviour and public opinion are going to reflect that. And how do you see things playing out in the in, in the autumn or sort of early autumn, even um, particularly with the return? To school, I spoke to a Tory MP yesterday who who said to me, you know, if we end up having to reintroduce any closures of businesses, and he said, you know, probably we could live with a reintroduction of masks, some limits on mass events, you know, involving some kind of proof of test, you know, that kind of thing we could live with. Um, but if we have to end up closing businesses again, he said, this government is finished. He says the, the, the prime minister's finished, if that's the case, which seems like quite strong words for a situation that seems quite likely right i think uh, i think that's true it's really interesting what you say and uh, i i think that you know johnson appears to be m- in danger of making the same mistake he made twice in the past you know when he you know took the brakes off and said let freedom ring um, and uh, everything you know uh, went pear-shaped uh, on both occasions so i but I think, you know, he's taking a big risk. And the more I think that politics returns to, quotes, normality, unquote, um, I think that the kind of things we've just been talking about, about the divisions within the party, the the dissatisfaction between uh, with Johnson that is out there, uh, you know, which is reflected, I think, in Chesham and Amersham and in the local elections, you know, is going to become a bit more of a potent force and you know as ever in the Tory party you've got you know ambitious people wanting to become prime minister and um, so you know the whole Sunak, Patel, Javid, Johnson, Gove, Nexus is going to be incredibly volatile I think in the autumn as well. 
there are there are people taking a different obviously taking a different approach we've talked a bit about Nicola Sturgeon's approach in Scotland where she's you know just said that masks will will remain compulsory in, in certain places for for the foreseeable future and she's not put any time you know end, end date on that and we heard last night that Sadiq Khan is also going to make mask wearing mandatory on public transport it's a bit tricky um in London where you're all sort of swapping on to national rail services that he doesn't have much control over um Sadiq taking particularly taking things into his own hands and the government advising businesses that they can just take things into their own hands there's five days to go and it feels like things could get quite chaotic after the 19th of July if everywhere's sort of enforcing different rules yes you're right I think there's a lot to play for over a few over the next few days I think in particular the the there is the issue of shops and pubs. And I think that's really, really hard because they've basically been dumped with having to make uh, decisions, which clearly, in terms of their own uh, staff and in terms also of their duty of care to their staff and to their customers, there's a strong case for them having some uh, regulations still in force. But whether those things can be enforced, that's a really hard ask. I mean, look what happened at Wembley. Um, on a, on a on a very dramatic scale, I'm going to steer clear of pubs for a bit. I think just for that reason that you know, unless you know that it's a small number of customers and they're all quite sensible, or it's all in the garden, I think uh, you know a pub's going to be a difficult place to be, especially in a sort of central London place where, or central city place anywhere where there's a, a lot of young people around. Yeah, it's going to be very very interesting to see you know what the public reaction is after that 19th of July. Um, Martin Kettle, thank you so much, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jess. After the break, why political parties are wrestling with patriotism. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, over the last month, we saw a nation come together, unapologetically waving the England flag, proud of their players. And politicians were keen to jump on the bandwagon of national pride, but not all of them are comfortable walking the tightrope of patriotism or expressing the kind of patriotism that defines this England team. So what defines progressive patriotism? And can it be used for political gain? I spoke with Sundar Katwala, the director of the think tank British Future, Will Tanner, a former advisor to Theresa May and director of the think tank Onward, and Sienna Rogers, editor of Labour List. 
So we won't talk about the result because it's all still a bit fresh, especially for me. But there has been, you know, some fallout from from this game, some of it obviously terrible in the racist abuse that some of the England players have experienced after the game. A, an interesting response as well to, to the way that they've the politicians have responded to that as well. This huge kind of national outpouring of solidarity as well for these players from from fans. Sunda, maybe you could, you could speak first a little bit about whether you're expecting this kind of fallout. Were people braced for there to be this horrible reaction if that was, you know, if, if England were to lose? I don't think so at all. I think it's been a very ugly ending to a brilliant month. And, you know, I think a lot of England supporters were um, really actually invested in the semi-final as a massive moment. I know I was. And that if they got to the final, that would be absolutely brilliant and that you might win or you might lose the final against Italy. But it was just an amazing achievement. So I think I think Sunday night was a bit of a shambles at Wembley in lots of ways in the organisation. I think the online abuse has obviously been, been terrible. But I'd be absolutely gutted if after 30 million of us have watched the first England final for 50 years, this is actually how it ends with almost letting those racist trolls define what this has meant because I thought it was a fantastically important uh, month for England as a society as well as just a brilliantly exciting time to have football back, um, you know, and England doing well at, at the football itself. Well, perhaps you could you could talk to us a bit about how you, how you felt about it, how, you know, this whole month of football and what it, what it has meant as a kind of challenge to how we perceive Englishness. There have been, you know, lots of flashpoints where, you know, different people's perceptions of what it means to be English have rubbed against each other. Yes, I think, I mean, so firstly, it's been a magnificent tournament. And uh, the number of people that I know who are not kind of avid football fans who have become completely engrossed and entwined within our national team's success is, I think, extraordinary. And it's a brilliant achievement, not just on the pitch, but I think off the pitch, because Gareth Southgate as the manager and uh, a number of the players, I think, have taken it upon themselves to be more than just footballers and to embody a a set of values that they think is characteristically English. And Gareth obviously set that out in his letter ahead of the tournament, which I thought was a a brilliant articulation of of Englishness that echoed lots of themes of Orwell and others in in days gone by. Um, So I I think the tournament has been a brilliant moment in which the country has come together. I agree with Sundar that the the ending um, betrays uh, that unity and that uh, that sense of, of belonging and national spirit that we've all enjoyed. It does feel like football is entering a new, perhaps very exciting era in which um, players and politicians both kind of share in some of the success of the national team. And for non-football fans in our listeners, I promise we'll get onto the politics more in a minute. But Sienna, t- tell us about how, how you see this generation of England footballers um they are they feel so starkly different don't they in terms of their values and what they're prepared to say about those values to the generations before them yeah i mean i think it's it's incredibly exciting um obviously the england team you know things like harry kane wearing that rainbow armband as england captain raheem sterling having for some time calling out racism in the media marcus rashford obviously on free school meals and then all of them taking the knee and continuing to do so. And to do that, that's all incredibly heartening as someone who is on the left. And it it does feel as if, to kind of see it from quite a political point of view, they've sort of managed to broaden their base by including so many people who are not typically 
perhaps sometimes feel uncomfortable in spaces where football is talked about because they feel sort of excluded. And this has just been so inclusive. It's really changed things. Cinder, Gareth Southgate's been lauded for his leadership throughout this this tournament, as both of you, you touched on. And the former footballer, Gary Neville, made the comment after the match that it was a kind of leadership that this country had been missing for the last couple of years, a kind of moral leadership. And I wonder if you agree with that. Perhaps you could also say, well, why, why has it been easier for a football manager to be sort of clearer on his stance on anti-racism and on, on bigotry? And, and when that hasn't, you know, when politicians either kind of fuel it or tie themselves in knots about it? Well, I, I suppose Gary Neville's also, you know, showing us his own politics there, which Will might have something to do about. But, you know, I would just be a bit reluctant about claiming Gareth Southgate for the left or the right and actually to look at what else he's achieved. 2020 has been different, though, because um, the Euro 2020, because the players actually had a big argument about politics right at the start around the knee. And I think Southgate, again, has bridged that. His own version of patriotism is actually quite, he's a sort of, he's a conservative liberal, I think. He is queen and country, the badge, the team, military service, this all matters. And he's inspiring this young team, average age 25, some of them 19. And he's quite open. He says, you know, they will have different ideas of national identity. He makes sure they all see the national anthem so they all sing the national anthem and then they take the knee and they see nothing contradictory about that so i think that's what's really interesting about southgate's england what's missing from our politics is nobody talks about england at all because it's a stateless nation it doesn't have english institutions i think the left has come on board with this inclusive anti-racist progressive england of the team but this this argument might make it difficult they might not believe that this is England or this could be England as they might not turn up and take it beyond the stadium, take it to the other 50 weeks of the year. I think the right has been a bit discombobulated by a progressive England having the centre ground. I'd like to ask you both, Will and Sienna, what you think about that, about Southgate's kind of um, patriotism and that, that kind of liberal conservatism of singing the national anthem, being speaking very openly about pride in, in, in the country, as well as holding that closely with anti-racism, anti-bigotry. It feels to me like neither of the two political leaders that we've got at the moment are quite able to to do that and hold both of them together at the same time, even though Boris Johnson perhaps might have, have done that as mayor of London. He's not quite doing that as, as prime minister. Will, do you want to, to, to talk about that? Of course. I think it does pose a bit of a challenge for those who are trying to perpetrate a, a war on work on, on the right, but also those on the left who are um, trying to project very left liberal, liberal values, which perhaps aren't shared by the majority of society. Like This is a challenge to both political traditions. Um, and I think uh, the government would do well to reflect on just how popular that politics is um, and how small the constituency is for, for the anti-woke uh, kind of partisanship, which I've always seen as a kind of quite big distraction from the fundamentals that voters really care about. Sienna, how how difficult is it for for Labour? Labour sort of got there was a huge backlash from within the party when we reported that Starmer wanted to kind of build a progressive patriotism narrative, wanted to use more, uh, use the Union Jack more, wanted to talk about pride in country more, because some people in the party see that as a bit of a, a red flag. You know, how can he walk that line? How can he? talk about it in a way that the Gareth Southgate seems to be able to talk about it. 
I think the problem there is that Labour appeared to be talking about the patriotism while abandoning the progressive part of that and the inclusive part. And that's partly because of all these internal battles within the Labour Party. And you know, as The Guardian has, has recently uh, reported and, and Aditya Chakraborty has uh, written about, you know, there are these rows about anti-black racism within the party with black Labour members reported to have left Labour last year over some of the allegations around staffers being racist and particularly hostile towards people like Diane Abbott within the party. There's also the Islamophobia and Keir Starmer specifically seems to be unpopular with Muslim voters and support for Labour among British Muslims has declined. And that really came to the fore with the Batley and Spen by-election. And then there's there's obviously the anti-Semitism as well, which isn't over because we'll have to see what happens at Labour conference with that. So I think sometimes it feels as if Labour is pursuing this kind of additive approach, which isn't going to work because Labour needs to be consistently anti-racist and not only when it's convenient. I wonder if we can talk you know, briefly about the immediate problems for the government and, and indeed po- possibly for, for the Labour Party and Starmer if, you know, the party tries to kind of adopt the England team's message and motto, f- you know, for itself. Um, there are obviously some backlash today, Sunder, you know, Tories, including Priti Patel, who had attacked the team for for bringing politics into football and, and Tyrone Mings last night, you know, kind of calling her out for this, suggesting she had st- even, even stoked the racism experienced by by fellow players. I mean, this is a new kind of, a new dawn for footballers speaking out like this. I mean, Sterling and Rashford have, have kind of led the way on it over the past few years. But can politicians ever win in these kinds of debates? I think there's a bigger thing going on that, that we miss, which is what's going on with the national identity that politics should turn up and be part of. We've seen this enormous intergenerational shift in my lifetime, that it's not just British identity that's going to be civic and multi-ethnic, it's English identity too. That surprised a lot of people. It surprises the liberal left who don't know that ethnic minorities might feel uh, English as well as British. It surprises the right that maybe isn't expecting that. It surprised the first generation of Commonwealth migrants to this country, I think, who knew that they came to Britain as British citizens but weren't expecting their children to feel English as well if they were born here. And none of our civic and political institutions have worked out why and when to talk about England. You don't talk about England because you're worried about annoying the Scots. But what annoys the Scots and the Welsh is when you talk about Britain as if it was England. Talking about England when it's England is a good idea. It's not about how noisy you can be about racism. It's actually speaking up for the inclusive vision and what we're going to do with it and for it in politics, in society. Because we've just left it entirely to football and cricket to give us this inclusive vision of Englishness. And you can't have it depending only on sport. Well, and Zian, I'm going to ask you both how you think the parties can do that inclusive vision of Englishness. What does it mean? What, what can they take on and, and do to try and portray that? Will, do you want to chip in? Of course. Well, so first and foremost, I think the thing that Gareth Southgate and the England team have done best through this tournament is display values of humility, moderation, a kind of focus on the task at hand rather than the wider debate. And those are always values that our politicians should bear in mind and perhaps at times forget. Um, so the first thing I would say is actually to take some of those values into our politics and, and make them the core of our politics in the way in which Gareth Southgate has made them the core of the England team. Um, but I do think, I think more generally, um, there is a really clear lesson that it is possible to marry a kind of love of country and a respect for tradition 
with a belief that society can be better. And for too long, we've kind of assumed that those things are uh, necessarily unreconcilable. And I just think that's that's always been wrong, but it's been proven to be wrong in the last in the last month. So I think that, that that for me is what politicians need to take from this. And and I do think that the political party that can do that will gain a really significant political dividend because it will come from not just the kind of London metropolitan seats and liberal seats, which can relate to more progressive values, but, but also from the Red Wall and other areas where that love of nation is very profound and goes incredibly deep into different communities. So I think there is a unifying vision there, um, but it's up to the parties to grasp it. Sienna, what's your, what do you think? I think this is all very important actually for Labour to think about and discuss because obviously divergence on kind of these social and cultural issues is the key weakness in the coalition that Labour needs to build in order to actually win an election. And it, you know, winning elections calls for the narrative making, for story building and you know, Labour likes to talk about things through a material lens, and it's it's probably been most comfortable in the last year when demanding the extension of uh, free school meals, along with Marcus Rashford, for instance. But voters don't just follow their material interests. We've seen with Brexit and Boris Johnson as well that kind of this emotional campaigning is really key. So progressive patriotism could be a really handy answer to to Keir's kind of the vision thing problem, and also his culture wars problem, because often the reaction is to kind of duck these battles. The problem with that is that it it comes off across as kind of inauthentic. And that's something that people already think about politicians. So you don't want to reinforce that. So I think Labour does need to start thinking about these things and how it can find the commonalities between voters, but without kind of kidding itself that can downplay the importance of some of these culture rows. That was such a fascinating discussion. Sunder, Will, Sienna, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra. This week marks the 50th anniversary of President Richard Nixon making the surprise announcement that he would be going to China to meet Chairman Mao. Joni Greaves speaks to The Guardian's China affairs correspondent, Vincent Nee, about the impact of that visit and the future for US-China relations. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Will Tanner, Sienna Rogers, Sunder Katwala and Martin Kettle. The producer is Yolin Gafan and I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 